I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And America isn't just a geographical location or a simple mass of 330 million people congregated within a set of lines drawn on a map. Most importantly, America is the story it tells itself about itself. And adding new chapters to a story feels natural enough. Time marches forward and so does a story. But what happens if, while expanding the scope of what's in front of us, we narrow the scope of what came before? Our guest this week shares how America's rich, complicated, and multi-ethnic history is at risk of being flattened by modern narratives. Razib Khan is a geneticist and cultural commentator. His writing, which spans topics that include cat and dog genomes to COVID-19, to the history of different ethnic populations around the world, has appeared in the New York Times, City Journal, India Today, National Review, Unheard, and other publications. And he creates content across two weblogs, two podcasts, and a substack, all of which can be found on his website, Razib.com, which is a hell of a get for a web address. <laughs> I am rather envious, Razib. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Now, the main thrust of our conversation will be discussing American identity, what it has been, what it's transitioning into, and what it might be in, let's say, 20 years. But before we get to that, I'd love to learn a little bit about how you got to where you are today. You were born in Bangladesh and moved to the United States with your parents at about the age of five. And so this is sort of a two-pronged question that I'm hoping you can perhaps tie together. What was your experience growing up in upstate New York as the child of immigrants? And how did you first become interested in genetics? So my experience was, you know, like you think about the 1980s, it's not quite a Jupa Lahiri novel, but there's a lot of things there that ring true. <laughs> I think, you know, if your listeners know about the Jupa Lahiri film and novel namesake, there's a scene where the mother puts a wool sweater on her child because it's cold outside without any undergarment. It literally happened to me. Because, you know, it was like upstate New York, it's super cold. My mom doesn't know how to put on these sorts of clothes. And so I would walk around with a wool sweater without anything underneath it. And it's itchy all day. And I hated sweaters my whole life. And it was only as an adult that I realized, oh, you're not supposed to <laughs> wear a wool sweater against your skin. You know, there's a lot of things that uh, I experienced that were kind of like amusing in that way. You know, there's other things where it's like, I think some people call them microaggressions. I'm not like super, super stressed about it. And as a kid, probably at least once a week, people would compliment me on the fact that I didn't have an accent and that my English was really good. You know, that sort of thing. People would ask where I was from. So Bangladesh is not, it's like kind of obscure. So I would usually say India, but then they would ask which tribe. So I had like a lot of uh, conversations that were just based on just like kind of like ignorance is, is a harsh connotation, but basically people who just didn't know anything. And as I've gotten older and older, and I, I, as an adolescent, my dad got a job in Eastern Oregon at a college there. That was even more isolated, much more conservative. Albany was like, you know, uh, where I grew up in upstate New York, Albany was more, shall we say, FDR Democrat, mostly Irish, Italian. This is the 80s, so before a lot of realignment, probably. But when I went to Eastern Oregon, it's, you know, kind of like cowboy country, a lot of Mormons, and just like a lot of rednecks, you know, and so that was totally different. But, you know, as decades have moved on, I get complimented on my English now probably once every six months. It's usually a person of a certain age, certain generation. So I think there's a lot of changes that have happened in America that I've seen, some of them good, some of them bad. Yeah, so that, that's, that was my upbringing. And in terms of genetics, I was always interested in anthropology, ethnography, stuff like that. Uh, you have to understand, I think part of it just has to do with the fact that 
I moved to the United States, and when I came to the United States and where I lived, it was a black and white country in terms of lived experiences, they would say. Like, you know, there are black people, there's white people. You know, maybe there's Italians and Irish, there's some differences there. But I was kind of a weirdo, you know, brown-skinned person who was obviously not black, but definitely not white. I think I, I was kind of interested in ethnography just for that reason, as an outsider, a third person, a third party. My family's background is more in technical physical science, engineering. And so I originally majored in biochemistry, I have a degree in that. And then I realized I really like my genetics class, which is more abstract and conceptual than like, you know, nitty gritty, molecular biology, mechanistic. You know, in my 20s, I got super interested in genetics, went back, got a biology degree. I went to grad school, studied genetics. And uh, the rest is history. That's what I make my bread and butter on now. You know, I do a lot of consulting. Human population genetics is just kind of something that I think about all the time. A couple of things about your answer popped out to me. I remember when I was visiting Ireland, <laughs> I was craving something with spice in it. You know, Ireland's a beautiful country, but I was just, I was craving something that had a little bit more flavor. I was staying in Galway and I drove about 30 minutes outside to an Indian restaurant and I started chatting up the waiter there and I was like, oh, you know, what has it been like being, you know, an Indian immigrant, et cetera. And the waiter actually said to me, he's like, we're all Bangladeshi. And I was like, oh, okay, well, why didn't you have like a Bangladeshi restaurant or whatever? And he commented that <laughs> an Indian restaurant is already kind of pushing the envelope for what the Irish are able to accept. And so we thought that introducing a Bangladeshi restaurant might be a step too far this soon. And that just kind of stuck out to me. But in regards to the black and white dynamic that you were talking about, that's something that when I moved out of California for work, it really struck me. When you're from California, there's a mix of Asians, Hispanics, whites, blacks, et cetera. And then when I went to Chicago and specifically outside of Chicago, and then also in the South, it was rather striking. But I guess that's typically how America has been for most of its history, which is a black-white dynamic. But when you're not used to it and when you experience it kind of for the first time, it can be rather stark. Yeah, I lived in California for 10 years, actually. Bay Area, Berkeley, and then I went to grad school at UC Davis. And yeah, I can tell you it's interesting. I moved to Austin. You know, someone was asking me, what's the big difference in Austin? And I was just like, well, where are all the Asians at? You know? <laughs> <laughs> just like, and I live near UT, where there's a fair number of like, supposedly a lot of all the Asians live around UT, but it was just, you know, all of a sudden, the Asian people disappeared. I mean, they're still around, you still see them, but not as numerous. There's a fair number of Latinos here. You know, there's a lot more black people, I would say. Well, I mean, you know, when I lived in Berkeley, you go to South Berkeley, you go to Oakland, you see a lot. But I mean, it's California. I, I exactly take your point. Like, if you look at the numbers, I think that proportionally, last I checked, there's fewer black people proportionally in California than Asian people of Asian American origin, right? It's a really different experience than the rest of America. Now, I grew up in Oregon after I left upstate New York. And there, um, you know, <laughs> I grew up in Union County in Eastern Oregon in the Northeast. And in 1990, my hometown newspaper had an article called The Blacks of Union County, and it profiled all 15 of them. Seven of them were members of the Trice family. But the others, other eight were um, cowboys. They were black cowboys. That's just where I grew up. And when I moved to Portland many years later, people would come up to me and they'd say, hey, you're Razim. And I'm like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I just know you. You don't know me. I'm from LeGrand, so I know who you are. Because I was the only person <laughs> that looked like me in the whole city. Wow. When you are a minor celebrity simply due to the nature of your ethnicity, you know you're rare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, you know, explaining that I'm Bangladeshi or, you know, I'm an atheist and I've been an atheist for, I mean, since I was a kid, I had to like explain like my history teacher would be like, I had to explain Islam and like show them how to do prayers to my class. And I told my teacher, I was like, 
but I'm an atheist. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but you know, you're the closest we got. So can you just educate them on this and just like keep that on the down low? And then he like, he leaned over and he's like, I'm not a Christian. And I was like, what? He's like, oh, I just go to church because my wife makes me, but I don't believe that stuff either. And I was like, okay, this is super weird. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a lot to put on a kid. I, I, I'm going to kind of jump the queue here because we are going to be talking about this later, but I want to mention it now because I don't want to lose track of it. What you just said about how you kind of had to be a representative of something that you didn't even personally represent, which in this case is the religion of Islam, right? But you were atheist and yet you were tokenized in a way for having to kind of explain it to the class. And I feel like we went through a period where we kind of recognized that putting something on someone like a religious or ethnic or racial minority, making them the totem for everyone else to understand a culture was wrong. And yet it seems like we're almost moving in the opposite direction and putting it under the umbrella of what have you, social justice or representation, where now we're supposed to look to people from communities as voices of entire ethnic or racial groups. Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, uh, I've talked to my white friends about this. My white friends at academia, they're totally uh, in denial. Uh, it's kind of frustrating. But I have actually uh, talked to other, like, let's say non-woke Asian Americans, because some Asian Americans are so whitewashed, they get super woke. You know, there's no difference, uh, to be frank. Basically, the period between 1990 and 15, we became simultaneously visible and normal, where we became part of the landscape and the paradigm. And then in the last five years, all of a sudden, the 80s have come back in a weird way, but transmuted, where the whole conversation is now black and white. And yes, it's BIPOC, and you know you can say non-black, you can have other ways. But really, we have been marginalized out of the conversation and the discourse. And when we pop up, it's to show allyship to... Uh, you know, the black struggle or something like that. You know, you have to be politically Asian. Uh, you know, I'm personally a Republican, conservative, right wing. And that makes me, you know, kind of a minority within the brown community, especially someone from, as they would say, an Islamic background or a Muslim background. So, you know, I'm pretty heterodox. But the fact that I have to use a word like heterodox, like, why, why does a, a ethnic group have to have an orthodox political ideology? That's super weird. But that's where we're at, right? Uh, Ayanna Presley. Uh, she used the term, you know, represented from Massachusetts, politically black. Like a person might have a brown face or a black face, but they're not politically black. What does that even mean? Like, I mean, could you imagine someone saying politically white besides Richard Spencer? <laughs> no, I don't think I could unless it was in the context of something like a white nationalist. And you talk in your essay, your roots are showing about this kind of very phenomenon about how we often can mask a lot of diversity within and I don't like using this term, the white community, whatever the hell that is, by talking about it as such. And I think that a similar problem is happening amongst Asian Americans, Latino Americans, and you know, even one of our established populations, Black Americans. There's a lot of diversity of thought and diversity of opinion that gets masked when we talk about yep. groups in this way. Yep. Rehan Salam has this article, The Utility of White Bashing. I believe that's the title yeah. of the article. I read that. I figured as much, where he talks about how especially Asian Americans and other minority groups will take on what is basically a white liberal yes. point of view in bashing lower class whites in order to, I guess you could either say assimilate or curry favor within certain elite white spaces. And it does seem like a it does seem like a funhouse mirror or an upside down version of the same problem that Asian Americans have been experiencing, like you said, for a very long time. 
I'm in the entertainment industry and I remember reading about the struggles of the director who made the movie Better Luck Tomorrow. His name is uh, escaping me. Uh, he's a pretty famous director now. I'm, of course, blanking. I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah. they were looking at the basically audience numbers for his film Better Luck Tomorrow when they were doing test screenings. And they had broken out the feedback by race. And so it was basically a pie chart. He's talking about this in an interview after the movie came out. And it's a pie chart and it has black, Latino and white. And it shows the different reactions and, and how people had responded to it. And he asked, he asked the movie exec, there's <laughs> the Asian section. And without missing a beat, and this was, I think, 2004, without missing a beat, the executive was like, oh, we just grouped those in with whites. Like it was just not even considered. Yeah. It's this weird phenomenon where whether it's pre-woke or post-woke, it feels like Asian Americans, and that's such a broad term, like all racial terms are, they're kind of either forgotten, like they were in the past, or they're used as like support cavalry for other racial causes, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't talk about this much anymore because it just gets boring after a while. New York Times had a thing where I called it Asian erasure, where they would show a graph and a chart, and they would have like white black latin x or whatever and then there would be no other group and sometimes it was in a really weird context so like imagine uh you know i don't know if your listeners have probably read some of those articles about stuyvesant high school which is a selective high school in new york city it's 75 percent asian american right there's an article about stuyvesant high school and asian americans are mentioned once and it's about ethnicity at stuyvesant high school that's called propaganda because anyone who goes to stuyvesant <laughs> The salient ethnic aspect is the overwhelming dominance of the children of Asian immigrants. And that was left out of a story about race at Stuyvesant. So, I mean, what can you call that besides propaganda? I mean, that's not reporting. I agree. When you specifically leave out a group, especially one that is represented in that large of a number, 75%, I think, there's an agenda there. And I'll use that as a way for us to transition to your essay, Your Roots Are Showing, because I do think it is relevant. Let's talk about the beginnings of America and how it informs our current cultural milieu. To get us started, I'm going to read a rather extended portion from the opening of your essay, Your Roots Are Showing. So it is rather long, (laughs) longer than usual, but I feel like I need to in order to kind of root, no pun intended, the audience in what we're about to discuss. So if you've got a drink nearby, feel free to take a long sip. But I feel like this is important to quote you here. So you start the essay with, quote, the Republican Party was born as an ethnic party formed out of a fusion of the anti-slavery factions in the Whigs and the Democrats. It absorbed the straightforwardly named Free Soil Party and established itself as one half of the American political duopoly that has persisted down to the present. But its core motivations were as much cultural as ideological. It was a revolt of one section of America against the power of the South and slave power. Despite all of the nostrums about ending slavery and polygamy and the need for federal investment in public works, the 1856 map shows who the Republican Party first drew its support from. It was the party of Northern Yankees. It was about identity, not ideology. Though in some contexts, Yankee gets used as shorthand for all Americans. The term originates with the citizens of New England. Seeking opportunity outside of their overpopulated homeland, New England Yankees fanned out from their crowded corner of the United States. Yankee traders and whalers became the most numerous Americans beyond the nation's shores, so common that the term Yankee became synonymous with American. New Englanders also migrated westward all along the northern fringe of the United States, creating the Yankee Empire. They settled the vast domains of western New York, northern Ohio, and Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. 
Later, the western portions of the Yankee Empire also became a magnet for Germans and Scandinavians, whose lifestyles and values were more consonant with those of New Englanders than they were with factions of old stock, Americans further south. This was the soil where the Republican Party took root. In 1860, the Republicans nominated a Kentucky-born candidate, Abraham Lincoln, and the party's reach expanded to other parts of the North beyond the Yankee fringe, thus capturing political power, which it would hold until FDR's New Deal. Until Roosevelt's realignment, every election involved jockeying between the old factions of Yankees, other Northerners, and the South. Though all these groups were white, their rivalries were deep and old. Despite attempts to patch up the fabric of American society, the blood spilled during the Civil War forever held the citizens of the North and South at a remove from one another. In contrast, in 2020, the debate often foregrounds, quote, whites and, quote, communities of color, as if the world is divided into such stark demographic dualities and always has been. Only it isn't describing anything more than a recent fashion. The idea of a white America versus oppressed minorities is a flattening and erasing of the persistent internal divisions amongst the former. Some systems of categorization obscure more history than they illuminate. This is patently obvious to many when it comes to, quote, communities of color. What has the Cuban American to do with the Hmong American? But the same applies to white Americans, from the erstwhile white ethnic category, including Catholics and Jews, Italians and Poles, to the Mayflower descendants, end quote. Thank you for letting me get through that. And let's start here. So growing up in the 90s myself, these distinctions between various white populations always seemed rather clear to me, not just along ethnic lines, but geographic ones as well. So in your view, Razib, what has caused this seemingly recent flattening of intra-white diversity into kind of a single homogenous identity? So it's weird. There are two extremes, and maybe they're like they're like opposite sides of the same mirror. Uh, white supremacists want to do this, like create like this white identity where their race, their physical appearance, whether you're Italian or Norwegian or whatever, you're white, right? And then kind of like a, a woke sensibility where, you know, they use words like white supremacy, white colonialism, white oppression, you know, white systemic privilege, all these, all these terminologies, they have to use white. So, you know, when you're talking about a moralistic framework, you kind of need to make it really simple You make it complicated. It's hard for people to get worked up in the same way. Like, well, you know, they're mostly good, but they got some bad aspects. And then, you know, like they did do evil here, but they're complicated. That's not motivating people. What you want to know is people are good and people are evil. And so there's this, uh, I feel like it's almost like a metaphysical construct of white privilege that drives all of human history. It's like the, the ground of being, the ontology. And to make it work out, you kind of got to erase people in West Virginia that are dying of opioid abuse and their life expectancy is crashing and they're less optimistic about the future than the average black American. You got to erase those people because they look white. They are white. So how can they not be part of the oppressive, privileged, systemic structure? Now, there are ways that people will explain it away. I have had friends say, well, a friend of mine who's from a kind of an economically deprived background, Irish-American, single mom, he is now a professor. I have another friend who's actually from kind of an Appalachian background. And, you know, their argument is, well, you know, I'm white, so now that I've succeeded, I don't have visible signs of my background. You know, I think the social science is actually pretty clear. Like, it doesn't matter if you have visible signs of your background. I mean, you don't have the equity. Like, all the arguments that apply for minorities, quote-unquote, apply to poor white people. 
they don't have the family money, they don't have the family resources, they don't have the social capital. It doesn't matter that you're a professor now. Your upbringing and background is going to affect you, right? So I mean that that's that's my assertion. But the new assertion for I guess social justice progressive people is like, well, the very fact of being white accesses you this privilege. You have a get into the room card of just all these privileges of being white, even if you're from a poor deprived background and you know like i said some of the people who are from that background and have succeeded they bought into this like they think i'm just like everybody else and i just tell them i'm like no you're not like just like everybody else you know your grandfather wasn't a doctor uh you don't have the same social networks etc etc and usually they kind of get a little irritated when i say that because they have to think about new thoughts but it does make sense to them like on some level they know that the professor whose parents were doctors and you know they took time to find themselves and they decided to go into academia and it was kind of a leisure thing versus them where it's like oh this is like grad school is the best job i've ever had and this is like the best health insurance anyone in my family has ever had that's a different life experience like they understand on some level that that's true but this ideology of white supremacy flattens all of that and it makes it so that everybody is on the same team you know and like that's what it is it's about teams allyship, all these simple categories, the flattening. Because when you flatten, you can mobilize easier. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting because that flattening that you're talking about in terms of mobilization is usually used by minority groups in a variety of countries, right? Usually they're ethnic, racial, or religious minorities. And that flattening is usually what a group will do to itself out of a convenience for political action, right? Like any group that exists, whether, I mean, however the group is constituted, whether it's a racial group, the ethnic group, religious group, etc., understands the diversity that exists within that group, but they will mobilize themselves in order to achieve a political goal, let's say, right? If you're part of a, a, a group of people, you can recognize all the differences among you. But when it comes to agitating for political change, you'll bind together and I guess temporarily flatten yourselves in order to achieve a goal. But it doesn't quite register to me why white Americans would flatten themselves. Yeah, well, so the uh, the leftist Freddie DeBoer, he was on a podcast recently, and he he has this idea. It's called a uh, Calvinism, like um, ideological or racial Calvinism, and it's basically like you're a white American, and you're born damned, right? You have these privileges, and you're predestined to have the privileges, and oppression and racism uh, are predestined, and they're just baked into the cake of existence. And you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates has said this explicitly. Kendi also has also said it where they're fighting against oppression, but they actually don't think you can ever do anything against white supremacy. It's, it's like this incredible force of nature that overwhelms everything. And like, okay, like this is, let me br- step out for a second. I understand that I'm promoting idiot land ideas here. Like anyone who has read a third grade level book of history knows this is idiot land assertion. Okay. Like I don't, I, like I'm trying not to laugh. It's so stupid, but this is what people are promoting in the public. And so if everything is predestined, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is just say you're bad. Just go go confess. That's not that bad. You know? Change your pronouns. Say you're a white supremacist. And then go do your thing. Go on your vacations and enjoy your life because nothing can ever change. You know? And Kendi and Tanahasi, they're doing okay for themselves. They're doing okay for themselves. So um, it's good for them. It's a good deal for them. So I, I, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of a win-win. You know, you... You signal your virtue, but then you don't take the next step, you know? And people say, well, you, virtue signaling is the first step, but, like, 
I mean, we know that whatever the next steps, the next steps are not going to happen. Like, ultimately, like, you know, I know a lot of people in academia that talk about, like, systemic racism and prejudice and all this stuff. And I just say, like, it's really easy. What you need to do is all of these minorities that you think should have these jobs, you guys just need to, like, draw straws and one out of five of you resigns and goes and gets a job in industry, which is fine. Because you don't deserve your positions. You say you don't. So just one out of five of you quit, free up the positions. Hire somebody of color, communities of color, and then we're all good, right? I mean, that's it's a simple thing to do, but they never do it, do they? What they do do is talk about how they're fostering inclusion in their own laboratory. They don't make the hard decision, which is the logic, or like you know, like reparations. I mean, we have Venmo. Like I, I told a, I told an acquaintance of mine who wanted to talk to me, you know, because I'm not as liberal as a lot of people, but I live in very liberal areas, and they want to talk to me about racism. And I just got sick of it, and I was just like, well, what you need to do is give your son's inheritance to a black family. Like, you're talking about wealth inequality right now. He needs to be poor and make his own way, and they need to have money, so just do it. And the person flipped out at me, because they just wanted to talk. And I'm just not super interested in talking. Like, I am a non-white person. I don't need to be talked to about racism all the time. It's not interesting to me, you know? It's not like something that I have to raise my consciousness to. It's like something that's in my face, you know? So it really annoys me. I know it annoys actually a lot of liberal non-white people, like social justice people, because they're just like, there's kind of like eye roll because like they know that they kind of have to accept it because they mean well, but it's like tiresome because it's a performance for the other person, right? So, you know, I've had situations where like, you know, white people want to know my experience with racism and I'll be like, well... I don't have too many experiences. I know I got hired for a job once because they assumed that I was a good programmer because I was brown. That's not what they wanted to really hear. You know, they wanted to hear some like really like horrible story so that they could feel better. Maybe they could be feel better about their own life. So I've been going on for a while, but those are hypotheses that I would present for why this became so popular so rapidly. I said in a um, previous uh, podcast episode with Brittany Talissa King that the black Instagram square is kind of like the Livestrong bracelet, where it's just something that you can do to show that you care. But at the end of the day, a Livestrong bracelet, I think you could just donate a dollar to get one. And yeah. it often seems like, this isn't my own original idea, I can't remember where I read it though, but it seems like a lot of this conversation around racism is just white people talking to themselves about how they feel about it. And then whenever they do talk to communities of color, which is a term I would love to disabuse myself of, but it's the language we have. It's often almost, it, it is almost a kind of repentance, like what you're talking about. They, they almost want to hear what your experience is so that they can almost lash themselves on the back like the priest from the Scarlet Letter for any sins of the past. And like you said, it doesn't really help actual people in need, whether they're dying West Virginians or actual struggling communities of color like Cambodian refugees. Yeah. I don't know. Some people say, well, it's good that they're actually admitting that they're racist and all this stuff. But I mean, is there really that much change? And it seems like performative. And in terms of change, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not like a Bernie bro type. I'm not like on the left. So I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot of these efforts to like, heal the world through policy. But I mean, at least it's something I can actually disagree with. Like, I don't even know what's going on half the time. You know, I have like Latino friends and, you know, they're like, what do they even say when someone proudly tells them, you know, I really respect the Latinx people. And like, my friends are just like, I just want to say like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I've never heard that word. It's like living in like this weird, like bizarro world where these people are playing language games and you kind of don't want to be rude, be like, this is all nonsense. But that's kind of what you want to say. 
I mean, speaking on my own experience, I'm half Armenian. My mom's side of the family is Armenian. Uh, they came over at the end of the Ellis Island uh, period, uh, the kind of divergence that you talk about in your essay. But, you know, when I was growing up in Northern California, we didn't really, I mean, it wasn't really any more interesting than my Italian American friends or Jewish American friends or Swedish American friends. It was just, it was a fun factoid. And then somewhere around like 2014 or 2015, I was at an event with some of my high school friends and then some of my LA friends who were meeting for the first time. And one of my high school friends who, again, I'd known for like two decades, made this comment, like a self-effacing comment where it's like, oh yeah, our, our friend group wasn't really that diverse. Michael up the diversity quotient in our group, like just by existing. And it was supremely uncomfortable, not just because they had never mentioned my ethnicity at any point in our entire friendship up until that point. And it seemed like there was a dividing line that had happened somewhere around 2014 or 2015, where they now felt like they needed to apologize for their friend group as a child was constituted. And they felt like they needed to invoke my ethnicity as a way to apologize. Sure. And it kind of speaks to what you're saying about your Latino friends. These kind of conversations don't really go anywhere, yeah. but for the person who's trying to talk about it. So I, I do have to bring up a story about Caucasian. So only in the United States is the word Caucasian used to mean white and European. Anyway, there are these two academics from Georgia, and they happen to be in Georgia. This, I think this was like 10 years ago. This was during like uh, the terrorism time. The country of Georgia. I yeah, think the country of Georgia, in the, in the, you know, the Caucasus region. I guess they were speeding or something, but like some like small town police officer stopped them, pulled them over. And this is during the 2000s when terrorism, you know, Middle East, all this stuff. And like they're Georgian. So they kind of look a little swarthy, dark haired, you know what I'm saying? Uh, stubbled. They got weird names on their passports or their license or whatever it is. And the guy's like, you know, where are you all from? And he's like, we're Caucasian. <laughs> and, and the, and the, apparently the, the cop was like, but I'm Caucasian. And they look at each other like, sir, we are Caucasian and we are looking at you and you are definitely not Caucasian. And it was just like this argument back and forth about who was Caucasian. And I just thought only in America could this like take on this level of urgency because obviously the police officer was offended that they were saying he wasn't white because he was obviously white, but they're from Georgia and they didn't understand the weird word that Caucasian means in the United States when they're actually Caucasian. So I just think like that's kind of like an old illustration, not old, but it's an illustration of the absurdity of taxonomy in the United States where people have to like figure out what word and, you know, they take on like magical powers. Oh, Absolutely. The moment you leave the United States for a vacation or work or what have you, you instantly realize how idiosyncratic and odd our categorization of race and ethnicity is. And I think that story perfectly illustrates it. But returning to your, your essay, later in the essay, you further delineate the kind of pre-1920s ethnic white Ellis Island generation of Southern and Eastern Europeans with what you call the old stock of white and black Americans who were present in the United States in the 1790 census. You cite a rather startling statistic in the essay, quote, as late as 1990, these old stock Americans contributed nearly half of the ancestry in the USA. These are the people whose roots in America go back to the colonial period. They were settlers and slaves who established themselves in the North American colonies of Britain, not immigrants to the United States of America, end quote. And that the descendants of this black and white population made up 50% of America's citizens until only about 30 years ago was kind of a remarkable revelation for me. I hadn't even accounted for it in my mind. So there's often talk about how in the 2040s or so, quote unquote, white Americans will become a minority in the United States. 
But this change in 1990 that you discuss in your essay almost feels more fundamental. So in your view, how has society changed since that point, if it has changed at all since 1990? Mm -hmm. um, and if it has changed, in, in what ways have the kind of decline of quote unquote old stock Americans becoming a statistical minority manifested itself in American society? Well, so I think one way is what I alluded to in the essay is the rivalries and the factions of the old stock Americans, which themselves are, you know, they're obviously black Americans, but among the white Americans, as I allude to in the piece, there's these Northern Yankees, there's, you know, people in the mid-Atlantic who are kind of a different stream with different values. And there's people in the South, the Upland South and the Lowland South are the two main streams. Although today they've kind of homogenized culturally just because of transportation, I think. So you have these factions and these divisions, right? And I think one of the things that's happened is the newer immigrant streams, and I, I allude to this in the essay, have integrated into the pre-existent coalitions. And this is actually like known, like I found out about this when I read a lot about the history of American Catholicism about 15 years ago. So there was this New Deal coalition between white ethnics and, you know, Jews were a small proportion, but they were pretty prominent and they were educationally quite advanced. So you have these Jews, these Italian and Irish, this FDR coalition, right, of Democrats. And then what started happening in the 50s and 60s, especially in the 60s, secularization shattered the coalition between Catholic intellectuals and Jewish intellectuals. And Jewish intellectuals basically sided with post-Protestant wasps, you know, like even if they were like not even Christian anymore. But basically, there was a split here where um, the Jewish academic intelligentsia elite kind of merged with the old Eastern establishment that was pretty bigoted and anti-Semitic as late as, you know, the 1920s and 30s. And it just gave the cold shoulder to the old Catholic intellectual group, which eventually drifted more towards the conservative, cultural conservative side. I mean, abortion was, for example, one issue where Jewish Americans as a whole, but also like Jewish intellectuals, were very, very pro-choice, very, very supporting of abortion rights. And this was a big thing for population control, you know, wasps. Like George H.W. Uh, Bush's uh, father was famously a big backer of Planned Parenthood. His nickname was Rubbers, Global Population Control. The Catholic intellectuals were opposed to this, obviously, right? And so what ended up happening is the Catholics started, like, creating their own little faction. And in the 1980s, you know, you have, like, the rise of conservatism in the new right, which brought in Southern Democrats, ex-Democrats. And you have these like Northern Catholic intellectuals like William F. Buckley Jr., famously son of an Irish American Catholic, although he was from Texas, his father was from Texas. But in any case, you know, you have these like reconfigurations, but these configurations are actually building atop a scaffold in a superstructure that goes back centuries. That's my argument. You know, when we talk about modern coalitions and modern alignments, we need to think back, okay, like, but what's going on underneath the surface and how deep does this history go? So like if you go to the Midwest and you know you were in Illinois, if you go to the southern two-thirds of Illinois, that's the south, right? If you go to the northern third of Illinois, it starts to become the north, you know? And this actually goes back before the Civil War, the southern part of Illinois is butternut country. A lot of the settlers there are from Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, the upper south like Abraham Lincoln from Kentucky, right? The northern part of Illinois, from Chicago, and then like a little bit south, but definitely like the border around Wisconsin, was Yankee territory. Back in the day, and actually to this day, I have a friend from central Illinois who will tell me that this is true. You know which towns were founded by Yankees and which towns were founded by people from the south, just because of looking at the town, the way people organize it, like how much they put into their houses, you know, the type of houses that they're building. And later the Germans showed up and there's a huge difference between German towns and non-German towns as well. And these things persist down even into the present, even if most of the people in the town are no longer German. 
there's just a certain way that people have been doing things in the town from the beginning and that just echoes down and that has this like long-term effect and it impacts like you know rayhan wrote that essay about asian americans asian americans are slotting into like they're kind of doing what the jews did aligning with establishment intelligentsia on the whole not all but on the whole and assimilating into those values into that cultural matrix and so you know when they're reading like even though henry adams was an anti-semite and a racist you know a descendant of John Adams, late 19th century. But like that, that is the person, like these like establishment elite intellectuals, they're still around. They don't have names like Henry Adams now, you know, they're like Henry Kim or whatever. But they're still the same kind of person, really. And they have many similar values, and their intellectual cultural pedigree goes back to, you know, 19th century New England. It doesn't go back to, you know, late Joseon Korea in the 19th century, whatever they look like where their parents are from, that's actually less important in some ways than how they were habituated, educated, raised, who they were raised around. Yeah, I can't remember where I read it, but someone said, America is, <laughs> for all of its faults, it is incredibly good, robustly good at making new Americans. And it's just interesting, because you're, you're touching on something that I think anyone can really observe. Again, having grown up in Northern California and now living in Los Angeles, Aside from visual differences or knowing that they're the daughters or sons of immigrants, it is it would be easy for you to forget if you were just listening to vocals and listening to what people were talking about and the subjects they read and those sorts of things. Like you said, it would be very hard to distinguish the son or daughter of an immigrant in certain Silicon Valley or Los Angeles circles from, you know, the son or daughter of a wasp who goes back 200 years. And so like this is this gets at like you know the whole idea of culture separated. So one of the things that I've noticed actually since the 1990s, the term multiculturalism to actually mean multiracialism, not multiculturalism. Right. I find it personally like pretty fing offensive. I'm just gonna swear because it's just like you know, I don't like it when people say they use the word Anglo for white, because I'm just like I speak English, that's the only language I really speak. I mean how am I not Anglo? You know what I'm saying? So uh, it, it's just like these sorts of weird conflations that are telling people, telling you what people's underlying like values are. So for example, Black Americans, their culture is mostly European. They're European-American culture, really. Yes, like racially, a lot of their ancestry is from Africa, but I mean, there's some things that are from African Black American culture, but a lot of them are not. Even a lot of the, I, I think I put it in, the, in my essay, there is a practice uh, where you jump over a broom at a wedding, which is a Black American cultural practice, particularly in the South. And they've tried to figure out how it comes from Africa. And there are some theories, but really the most probable scenario is it comes from, you know, Scottish cultural practices that were brought to the new world and you know in the slave culture in the south it was like a melting pot and there were you know people indigenous servants from scotland and also people that you know they intermarried into the black community and somehow it spread and so this cultural habit that is distinctive in the united states to black americans actually comes from scotland i'm not saying here that you know black americans would be accepted in europe or whatever i'm just saying but as a fact they speak english mostly christian protestant a lot of their cultural practices are Anglo-Celtic. And, you know, even in the way they eat, yes, there are some African influences, but basically Black American food is a form of Southern American food. Like, they're very similar. And some of it is just ecology. Like, if it's in the hot South before consumer appliances, you're going to do a lot of frying, etc. But anyway, this is like, that's another pet peeve of mine, uh, where I think we are losing our sense of how people organize. 
Yeah, well, and we're just so inarticulate when it comes to talking about these issues. I think because our language, at least at, at a national level, national discourse level, is so coarse. What you're saying isn't revelatory, but I think probably to some people listening to this, it might be the first time they've ever really considered that, right? Because we talk about this dichotomy between black and white Americans as if they're like two unique populations, but beyond just the racial or genetic markers, however you want to, I know you're a geneticist, so I'm sure that you can look at DNA and stuff like that. But in terms of just culture, you know, let me just read from this. There's a quote from the essay that I want to read that I think is relevant. And it kind of takes us into the next question. You mentioned the, the black American practice of jumping over a broom during weddings. And then you go on to say, quote, black Americans represent the most prominent and well-known block of old stock Americans, but they are not the most numerous. Speaking about white Americans artificially brackets many different types of Americans together. In the process, we erase a tense history of conflict and a fruitful synthesis of folkways. When headlines trumpet the fact that, quote, most white voters voted for Trump, they collapse the essential distinctions and local histories that drive these social and political decisions. The cultural and social distance between a white roofer in southern Mississippi and a white lawyer in Connecticut is vast, and yet they are both white beneficiaries of, quote, unquote, systemic racism in our present day secular theology, end quote. And what you said is so true. The similarities between a black person living in the South who can trace their ancestry back 200 plus years and a white person who is living in the South who can trace back their ancestry, you know, to the pre-1790 census are much more alike with one another than a white Southerner is to a white person living in Massachusetts. You channel quite a bit of Albert Murray and the Omni-Americans in your essay, and especially in that paragraph about Black Americans and weddings and the broom tradition, how that kind of ties in with a lot of quote-unquote white American traditions. And we often don't discuss how foundational Black Americans are to our national heritage, nor the kind of fundamental cultural differences between white Americans who have lived separately and distinctly from one another for most of American history. Oftentimes, people in the North and people in the South for hundreds of years didn't really move beyond a maybe 10-mile radius. So I guess the two-part question I have for you with the central theme of identity flattening, the first part that I'll put to you is considering the historical and cultural contributions of Black Americans and their fundamental placement in the old stock population, to use your phrase, why has our discussion on the national level and fairly recently seemingly simplified their role? in recent years to one of a simple oppressed class when they are so much more than that. I mean, there, there is only one other population really that goes back that far and has played as fundamental a role in the development of American society since pre-1790. And that's really the settler population of white Americans. Yeah. So why has their identity in recent years been flattened to just this oppressed class, which erases so much of their cultural identity? I think the simplest answer is like, uh, it's useful. For the cultural leaders, they play a role in this drama, in this morality play, and they have to be the oppressed, the the wretched of the earth. So the complexity has to be crushed out. You know, the joy, just the positive aspects of Black American culture, like, has to be erased lest people think that they are not, you know, suffering in misery. Also, it's, you know, there are a certain number of Black American elites that make a good living doing the oppression game and that's their role that's their shtick right why would they you know give that up as far as white americans again i think it's like this calvinism utter depravity they're utterly depraved they're filled with sin original sin of white supremacy and so black americans don't exist as individual people they exist as part of the forces of the universe in which white americans white people are the agents 
right? So, and this has been internalized by many non-whites too, where I have like heard from Indian Americans how the British introduced the gender binary to India. And I don't really know where to start with that because other societies had literacy. Like you could actually read (laughs) what they said. This reminds me of a, a quote from a post you put on Twitter, gosh, a year or two ago. I think it was right around when I became aware of your writing, just jumped out at me. I can't remember the exact phrase of it, but it was something to the extent where you, I think, were venting about a similar phenomenon. And you posted something to the extent of white people are not gods. People always remember that. Multiple, <laughs> so many people have brought that up because I think that touches on something. It does. I mean, I, I think that I've said this to one or two other guests. There is this kind of horseshoe theory at work here where when you're listening to a unrepentant white racist or you're listening to someone who labels themselves as a social justice warrior. And I do want to give I don't want to disparage people who are actually and I I imagine you're in the same camp. I don't want to disparage people who are actually like doing real work in communities, attempting to help people, you know, and I don't want to erase like disparities that exist. Right. So I I, I don't want to I'm always trying to guard against at least when it comes to how I talk about these things. I, I try and guard against just saying woke and just like writing off everybody, right? But there is a certain class of person who when they talk about how everything is related to white supremacy and everything that's ever happened in the world is because of white people, I'm like, you have found a way to give your quote unquote racial group credit for everything in the world while also distancing yourself from it at the same time. It's like white supremacy without any of the guilt. It's kind of disgusting. One thing is like there people don't teach history, I think, in schools too much anymore. Um, education is about skills, not facts. So people are actually shocked and surprised when you bring up facts about the past that trivially falsify their cartoon model of world history. So, you know, and this is internalized by a lot of non-white Americans where they don't realize like they too have a history before the white man opened his eyes and they're not cats who are live in a state of indeterminacy before they are witnessed by the white man, you know? They have a, a history before, and it's really frustrating that people are entirely ignorant of it because there's a lot out there. And we have the internet, we have all these resources, you can read, you can know, you can understand. But what people want is simple pegs to fit into their morality plays. And so I, you know, I have relatives in Bangladesh and you know, and I have friends who have relatives in Asia. And I can tell you one thing is like, these discussions are not happening in Asia anymore. They're moving on. Some of them might deploy this like rhetoric in a very uh, self-interested way just to win arguments. But history is marching on and we are fixating on our old 20th century troubles. And, you know, part of it is, you know, to be entirely frank, you know, the decline of the West. We are talking about white supremacy at the end of the age of white supremacy. It's pretty much over now. And we're talking about it constantly. I don't know if it's ironic, but it's like in inversion. Like when white supremacy was a real thing in say the 1950s, like you look at which countries ruled what, what the GDP was, what the world population was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People didn't talk about white supremacy. Now in 2020, white people can't shut up about white supremacy, but they're actually less and less important literally every year. So I, I don't know if that's a causal connection, but that is what it is. You know, civilizations in decline often go through these like last stages of, of denial and reaction. And maybe this is part of it. I'm wondering if it's related to a phenomenon you talk about in one of your other essays, In God We Trusted, where you 
speak about how it's often not until a phenomenon has already like fully taken place that we can actually recognize that it's happening or recognize yeah. that it has happened. Yeah. Um, and you kind of talk about it in relation to how we didn't realize on a national level, the sharp decline of Protestantism and religiosity in general in the United States until after the process had already taken place. I think what you said is, is so spot on. It's not that there's no value in talking about these things. Of course there is, but this all-consuming discussion about it would have had way more value, as you said, in the 1950s and 1960s. But I mean, if we're being frank, white Americans at that period of time could not have given, I mean, and I'm speaking broadly here in, in terms of majority populations, they couldn't have given two craps in, to some extent about talking about it. It was only after the decades of civil rights having been won and the moderation of white Americans and the liberalization of their views around race that took place over decades. So by the time they actually want to talk about it, that era has in many ways already passed. Let me give like some of your listeners concrete examples of, uh, of change that I've seen. In 19, it was like 88, I believe, my librarian at my elementary school collapsed. She had some fainting spell. Her husband came to pick her up. It was a big thing. Her husband was black. And that was all we talked about the rest of the day. The librarian's husband was black. You know, <laughs> today we would not notice it. Okay. It has changed. Uh, like I am in, in a interracial marriage and I probably have never, I mean, we never talk about it. It's not a big deal. The only deal is like, we got to be entirely honest. My six-year-old, I have three children. My six-year-old is browner than his younger brother. And he was calling his younger brother a racist because he's white. And we had to talk to him about how that's not acceptable. And apparently he'd there was some, something at school, on a Zoom school, where he had gotten the impression that black people were better than brown people and brown people were better than white people. So <laughs> we had to, uh, it's 2021 or whatever now, you know, so this is, this is where we're at. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember, um, I, I don't personally remember this, but a story my mom told me because I, I have a sister and my mother's Armenian. My dad is of European heritage, I guess you could say. And so siblings can come out looking quite different, like you just described with your own children. And so I have kind of a lighter olive complexion and kind of dark brown hair. And my sister has, at least when she was a small child, had almost strikingly blonde hair and paler skin, much like my father. And when my mom and my sister were out, like my mom was pushing my sister around in the stroller, she would often be asked and or treated as if she was my sister's babysitter, not her mother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this was this was in like the late 80s, early 90s. And that would never happen today. But just that idea of someone looking so strikingly, you know, because people would always kind of ask my mom, you know, where, where are you from? I can't quite tell, you know? Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> it still happens. Like, so So my my youngest son, or not my youngest son, my, my older son, he had a little bit of jaundice. And he is a little swarthier. Like, he has interesting coloring because his eyes and his hair are actually lighter. And I actually know why genetically, but that's a different conversation. And his skin is a little darker. And so when he was an infant, like, he was a little swarthy. And my, and my wife is, is blonde. And uh, a woman came up to her at a supermarket in Davis, California, and asked, like, what his nationality was. <laughs> and my wife was like, what? And so she's just like, you know, where'd you get him from? Like, he's so cute. And my wife was like, my body. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, <laughs> I actually know the exact provenance of where he came from, as a matter of fact. She, yeah, she didn't know what she was asking at first. So, and you know, and I've had some false negatives where just people just don't assume that my kids are my kids because the term is white presenting, I believe, you know, mm. I don't know. Uh, that's just, that's just how it is. I don't really, it's not a big deal for me. Like I haven't had like huge issues. 
It's just that sometimes people just assume that I actually like I was with my daughter once with a female friend. She's white and anyway, my, my wife was sick, so I was just like, let's just take I'm gonna I'm gonna take her to the park with Amber and anyway, we were in the park and some woman started having a conversation with Amber and I realized like after like ten minutes we realized, oh, she thinks that I'm Amber's boyfriend, but not the father of the child, and that Amber is the mother, and I was just like, Okay, this is like getting really confusing to me you know <laughs> it's just like the assumptions people make but you know as long as it's all in innocence i don't really i don't take much of it it's like people in the rest of the world are they ask like quite blunt questions like you know i've experienced way more racism in europe than i ever have in the united states so if you experience the world you, you have a sense of perspective oh for sure this was a conversation that i had with an ex of mine years ago, she's Asian American. She was kind of in activist circles. And so of course I was as well around like 2013 to 2016 or so. And I want to be careful in that it doesn't make those kind of incidents in which you're, you know, mistaken for a foreigner or weird questions are asked of you. That doesn't negate the fact that those can be uncomfortable or even painful experiences, but kind of what you said about how these kinds of events, right? As long as they're not malicious and intent, are kind of natural, I'm going to articulate myself correctly here. They are kind of a natural process when a nation that was once a certain of a certain makeup begins to change, right? Yeah. People are used to seeing a population one way, and then that population changes, and there's a point of friction in which the new population is introduced, and there's a bit of confusion. And of course, there's also going to be racism and bigotry, et cetera. But amongst that hatred, there's also just going to be simple misunderstandings and weird questions. And I remember asking her because there was this view in this activist circle that, well, this is only happening here or white people are the only people who are doing it. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, if I like, if I went back and visited China, right? And let's say I spoke perfect Mandarin, would people be shocked? And of course they would be. And if there was all of a sudden a massive migration of white Europeans, let's say, into Asia over the course of a 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 year period, eventually people would get used to the idea of Swedes walking around speaking perfect Cantonese or Mandarin. But there would be a period of time in which that transition would take place where people would be surprised. And so I worry that when we have conversations about things like this, we take what is real and wrong and bad and malicious racism and we flatten it with what is kind of a simple human instinct and an understandable one that doesn't excuse the pain on the receiving end, but it's kind of a natural process of when a country diversifies from what it once was. 100% cosine. You know, it's a, it's a time for subtle conversations and complexity, but it seems like we're going in the opposite direction. You know, here's a question. I mean, I, I've seen some of your past guest lists and stuff like that, but it's like, why is Ibram X. Kendi America's preeminent public intellectual and not Glenn Lowry? That is that convicts us, you know, as a society. I think that, I mean, this this is just my two cents on this. Yeah, I don't disagree with everything that Kendi says. You know, I think that his constitutional amendment idea would be incredibly and intensely destructive. But some of his personal anecdotes and some of the ways in which he talks about how race manifests itself in American society, I don't disagree with all of his precepts, right? But I think that I think that why Kendi gets more sway than, let's say, a Lowry, for instance. I think some of that has to do with the fact that Lowry, whether I don't know where he puts himself on the spectrum right now, but I know he was conservative and then liberal again, and he might be conservative again. I think some of that is an anti-conservative bias that happens in the media. 
And I think also it goes to what you were saying earlier about how there's a certain kind of white elite class that wants to tell themselves a story about race that makes them feel better about themselves, that allows them to distance themselves from poor whites. And any way that they can distance themselves from the quote unquote bad whites, the whites that Rehan Salam talks about and the utility of white bashing, any narrative, especially a narrative from the, the group that is quote unquote oppressed, that kind of gives them that feeling that they're right is going to be one that's echoed. I mean, I think it's kind of in some ways when you go to church, you want the pastor to say the things that you're used to hearing from the Bible. And why wouldn't you want to hear those things? And it's unfortunate because, again, like, and I don't mean to sound like a mealy-mouthed centrist here, but there are a lot of points, in my opinion, on the left that make sense. And there are points about race and the history of races in the United States that, to me, ring true. But what happens when we only hear those point of views, and we don't hear the point of views beyond podcasts, let's say, of the Lowry's and the McWhorters or the Hughes and the, you know, the other speakers on this topic, yeah. we, lo- we lose a ton of nuance. When I read my first, like, Thomas Sowell essay, I was shocked by some of the things that I read and the similarities between Southern whites and Southern blacks and the shared heritage that they had. In my opinion, those stories are very useful for Americans to hear because it shows that we have a binding commonality as Americans. And talking only about these populations as if they're incredibly culturally distinct, in my opinion, forwards the cause of racism. If we talk about the similar cultural identities that we have as Americans, And we talk about how black Americans are foundational to the founding of this country. In my opinion, that's very helpful. But that narrative isn't forwarded by the speakers that we put to the front of the line. And it's not that those speakers have no value. It's just that we should hear a chorus of voices. And I, I know I'm ranting here, but it's a topic that I care a lot about. And I think it's important for people to hear a variety of views on this topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I told a friend of mine uh, the other day, I mean, that you are a liberal, you know, in a classical or like in in a broad sense. And a conversation is the oxygen of liberalism. So our tendency today to not have conversations, to not talk to those who we disagree with, is kind of asphyxiating. It's strangling liberalism, the liberal impulse, you know, uh, to know others and be broad-minded and stretch yourself in a way and think like, oh, I had never thought of that. Like there are people out there where everything fits in neatly into their worldview and that's becoming more and more common. You know, it's it's dispiriting. Hopefully we are at the end of it, but I actually, frankly, pretty pessimistic. So I think this is going to be a, we live in interesting times. Yeah. And, and this is something that I've experienced when talking to friends of mine and relatives of mine on the right. Most of them, most of the people I know on the right are, you know, relatives. And most of the people I know on the left are, are friends of mine here in Los Angeles. But there is a sense on both right and left, and I'm speaking in broad strokes here, of course, that people want to hold on to the caricature that they have of the other side because they're afraid to grapple with the ideas if they grapple with them in the way that they are actually presented rather than the caricature that's fed to them through whatever media they listen to. It's much easier to write off the other side as a Marxist or write off the other side as some like racist white supremacist bigot when it would probably be better for you to listen to like, why do they want smaller government or why does someone want Medicare for all? But I feel like people are comfortable with a caricature because that way they don't have to critically think. Yeah. And it it worries me. It worries me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, but it's it's also human nature to just go after confirmation. (laughs) Like liberalism in some ways is water going uphill. Yes. Yes. You know, exposing exposing yourself to things that might actually change your views is it's a little uncomfortable. And so this younger generation, I'm a Gen X, uh, I think you're millennial, uh, younger generation millennials, in particular Zoomers, they, they say all these weird words and phrases that indicate 
kind of disturbing worldviews like, oh, uh, that makes me uncomfortable, as if I'm supposed to give a shit. Don't really care. I mean, as an atheist from a Muslim background, my existence makes a billion Muslims uncomfortable. That's, that's the world. Or, uh, you know, just read the room. Are we in middle school? But these are grown adults saying it, you know? So the trajectory is not, like, really something that I'm very optimistic about right now. But, you know, stuff changes fast. It's nonlinear. So that, that's the main hope. Like, I have, like, only moderate to low confidence in any assertion I make because of the volatility in our culture and our society. Yeah, I mean, it's like that saying, you know, strong opinions loosely held. Yes, yes. I think what you said is relevant to another point that you make in your roots are showing. In the essay, you discuss how the 2020 election sort of exploded the idea of a cohesive, quote unquote, white voting block, right? Um, And you detailed how white suburbs shifted against Trump while Latino and Asian precincts drove Republican victories down ballot. And one only needs a diverse, and I mean ideologically here, of course, in addition to racially, social circle to see this phenomenon in action. You talk about this in the final paragraphs of that essay, but I myself have experienced a similar phenomenon. I mean, I have Latino friends and acquaintances here in Los Angeles who want open borders, and I have others, also Latino, who want immigration drastically cut. There are Asians fighting both for and against affirmative action. Hell, Prop 209 here in California, which banned the consideration of race and gender preferences in state hiring and university admissions, was spearheaded by Ward Connerly, who is a black man. So, Looping back to what you were saying about how we are so bad at talking about these issues, I'll put a question to you, and it's a difficult one, but how do we go about fostering a more nuanced discussion around issues of American identity in the 21st century? And if you were, say, the emperor of discourse, how would you have us group Americans, if not by race, to better reflect and account for our divergent views? Yeah, I think one thing that I wonder about is... uh This is weird uh, in terms of like, I don't think that you would have guessed this answer because it's kind of a weird thing that I've just been thinking about. Uh, Get rid of the importance of elite schools. So all the smartest kids from all the best families going to Harvard and Yale from wherever they are. Instead, like reemphasize state schools, uh, regional schools, because that way, like if people from quote good families, from prominent families go to the same schools for college as people who are struggling, that mixes people together of different class backgrounds, different ideological backgrounds in a way that I don't think is happening as much today because of the sorting. You know, I don't know how you could do it by fiat through government. Like as a conservative, like I have a lot of skepticism about the educations and higher and higher education kids are receiving today. I think we need to have a total rethink. I think that would be a big change, and I think it would really help. You know, Brigham Young University uh, is an interesting university because Mormons go there of all different classes and of a wide range of academic backgrounds. And obviously, Mormons are a uh, a subculture with their own values. But I have had Mormon friends who've said that BYU is interesting because you know you meet the rich Mormon kids from you know West LA, and then you meet the kids from rural Southern Utah. They're all there. And they just have their Mormonism in common and everything else. They're different. And there's a lot of like racial diversity now because a lot of Pacific Islanders and Latinos have converted. And so they're at Brigham Young as well. There's a lot of international students because of the whole language program that they have. That's just like a weird random thing that I think would bring people back together. You know, I I come from a libertarian background originally. And I think we need to think about like, you know, the whole quote unquote neoliberal economic paradigm, which has resulted in a lot of working class immiseration. 
we need to figure out how people can put bread on the table without a college degree and have some dignity. And I think that requires us to think about like, what is the purpose of this market economy? Like, what is the end goal of the market economy? Not just like take the market economy for granted. I think communism, socialism don't work too well. Um, I'm not talking about that. But we just need to be more conscious of where we're going and not just going with status quo and repeating nostrums for the 20th century about free trade and, you know, all of the things that I myself repeated uh, before 2008. But, you know, we need to update based on empirical evidence. Sometimes our theories have holes and gaps. And I think we just need to think more empirically and less dogmatically about economics, about culture, all of these things. And then I think we can pivot, like thinking about a startup, startups pivot. We still have time to pivot as a culture, as a nation. But, you know, at some point, your, your cash is gone, your runway is over, and you liquidate. So that's what we're faced as a country. I, I, this is not, we are not on a sustainable track. Whatever your ideology, I think most people can kind of agree on that. And so the question is, how do we write ourselves? And what should we write ourselves in terms of how? So like, how would be like, okay, like, rethink education, because I think children are the future, education is super important. That would be okay, like, that's how we can figure out how to pivot. But then what do we pivot to? You know, like, what's our product market fit as a country? Like, what are we about? You know, are we about going to Mars? Are we about universal basic income? I don't know. What are we about? Like, not just about your individual decision and your car and your house and your vacation, but like, what are we about as a society? And I don't think like we have an understanding right now. We need to have that discussion. Yeah, I agree. I went through a libertarian phase myself, kind of Ron Paul phase, I think somewhere in like 2007 and 2008, mostly as a reaction to um, losing my faith. I kind of became like, you know, very kind of anti-authority for a brief period of time. Over the last several years, I I think I've gone through a, a similar kind of reflection period where I've realized that like the idea of atomization and just free markets and everyone for themselves, like you can't cohere a country that way. And especially as, you know, the nation becomes more racially and ethnically diverse, I think you're exactly right. We have to figure out a story that we can tell ourselves and something to rally around that reminds us of our commonality and our commonality of purpose. And I fear that part of the reason that we're infighting as much as we are is because we can't have anything to kind of all point ourselves towards. So to end our conversation, I want to put a question to you that I put to every guest at the end of the show. And perhaps it's an opportunity to add a little bit of a silver lining on what was kind of a, a darker third act of the conversation. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking about everyone else, every other group of people, even everyone else in your own life all the time. It's literally impossible. There's just too much going on. So is there someone, Razib, in your life or a group of people, abstract or concrete, that you'd like to take a moment and offer empathy to? You know, <laughs> I, I, I will offer empathy to all the people I have uh, needled and prodded and poked over my lifetime with my heresies and blasphemies because... Uh, I have issues with empathy and I am way too amused by myself. And what I need to, you know, as I get older, what I need to figure out is put myself in other people's shoes, I guess. You know, I'm a trickster. I enjoy my jokes and I enjoy the absurdity of the world. And yeah, it's, it's fun for me, but sometimes absurdity can cause hurt feelings. And I need to realize that that matters. That matters in the world. Yeah, agreed. I, as someone who 
personally, I'm spending more time on Twitter than I ever have before. I'm fairly new to the platform, but it can be kind of a black hole you can get sucked into if you're not careful. Just an <laughs> endless array of subtweets. Tell me about it. Yeah, my subtweets are pretty, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, they're pretty cryptic a lot of the time and they have multiple levels. Like I've been on it way too long. Thank you again, Razib, for coming on. Thank you for the writing that you're doing. And I know that it's a label that both of us are remiss to use, but your heterodox views on issues of race, culture, identity, along with all the other topics that you discuss in your podcasts and essays, I think are really vital right now. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about issues that we really don't talk about enough with enough nuance in American society. So thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure.